Welcome to episode 28 of the Charles C.W. Cook podcast. This is the first podcast I've done since I've had a haircut, so if it sounds a little bit different, that's almost certainly why. I asked Luther Abel, who was on my show a few weeks ago, if we could amend the operational fentilitration to deal with the shift caused by my having had a haircut, but I haven't heard from him since he went down into the control room. And there's now a strange howling sound coming up the stairs, so I'm sure he's okay. I hope he's okay. Before I get to my guest, I have time for one quick question. Please do keep those questions coming. Very useful. Which is... Sorry about that. Poor old Luther. He'll be missed. Question one of one. Why do most state legislatures have a Senate? At the federal level, it makes sense because it balances population representation with state representation. But this does not exist at the state level. In Minnesota, where I live, the Senate district is literally made up of two House districts. It is just a 50% smaller population-based parliamentary body. Wouldn't it make more sense if the Senate had a representative from each county instead? Or just have a unicameral legislature like Nebraska? This is a, a good question. Now, I ought to note at the outset that while it's true now that at the federal level the Senate balances population representation with state representation but that this does not exist at the state level, it was not always the case. Historically, many American states had systems exactly like the federal system, where the state senate represented, say, counties or geographic areas, and the state house represented the people more generally, or vice versa. But in 1964, the Supreme Court decided in a case called Reynolds v. Sims that this arrangement violated the 14th Amendment to the Constitution. In a vote of 8 to 1, the court contended that while it couldn't do anything about the federal Senate because it was explicitly outlined in the Constitution, the states were not allowed to copy it because to do so would be to violate the principle of one man, one vote. And overnight, disproportionate legislative chambers were outlawed at the state level. Now, as a matter of taste, I understand the opposition to state senates that are divorced from popular representation. Certainly, the practice yielded some bizarre results, 
in Nevada, for example. The smallest Senate district prior to Reynolds v. Sims contained just 568 people, while the largest contained 127,000 people. In Utah, that range was 165 to 32,380. In Vermont, it was 36 to 35,000. And yes, sometimes that yielded grotesque results, as in parts of the South, where it was used to uphold Jim Crow. But I must say that I do not think that as a matter of law, the Supreme Court got that case right. In his lonely dissent, Justice John Marshall Harlan II accused the majority of activism unmoored from the text. And I think he was correct. The 14th Amendment existed for nearly a century before Reynolds v. Sims, and no one had argued during that time, or argued while it was being written and debated, that it was intended to strike down the internal legislative workings of the states. As Harlan wrote, the court's decision to bring state legislative apportionment within the purview of the 14th Amendment amounts to nothing less than an exercise of the amending power by this court. And he was right. The 14th Amendment had something to say about what the states could do. It did not determine how they could do it in that regard. That aside, though... I do think that, as a question of design, the case for bicameral legislatures at the state level is much weaker than at the federal level. Now, I'm an enormous fan of the US Senate. Far from being undemocratic, as some critics charge, the US Senate serves as a guarantee of local democracy. If the federal government were omnipotent, if it had control over every area of policy in every area of the country, it would, indeed, be unfair and unreasonable for Florida to have the same number of senators as Wyoming. But the federal government isn't omnipotent, and it's not supposed to be omnipotent. The federal government is supposed to do only a handful of explicitly enumerated things and then leave the rest to the states. As such, the Senate makes total sense. The Senate does not stop California from doing whatever California wants to do within California's boundaries. It does, however, stop California from changing the rules within Rhode Island. At least it does that unless there's mass buy-in for whatever change California is trying to achieve. Properly understood, the U.S. Senate is one of the many means by which the American federal system is defended. On pretty much every important question, zoning, transportation, education, regulation, crime, and so on, the states are expected to run themselves. For the handful of national questions that obtain... We have a federal government, and that federal government is expected to gain broad acquiescence from the states before it acts. In a nation as politically divided as ours, that is vital. Now, obviously, this does not work the same way at the state level. 
the states enjoy generalized police powers, not enumerated powers. And as such, a simple majority should do. And if a simple majority will do, then the case for a bicameral legislature with a disproportionate second chamber is, of course, weakened. I don't particularly mind if a state wants to arrange itself differently. As I say, I think Reynolds v. Sims was wrong. But I can't really see why it would unless the aim is to hamstring the population centers in favor of rural areas. Now, from a a policy perspective, I'd probably quite like the results of such a hamstringing, but structurally, it doesn't make a great deal of sense. The federal government's limited because it came after the states. The federal government is a layer added on top of the states. It's not a replacement for them. But this isn't true of counties, city governments, school districts, and so forth which are all creations of and subordinate to the states. It's the states, not the federal government above or the counties below, that are the building block of American life. So it seems odd to draw distinctions within them that don't comport to population. As for the system we have now, post-1964, in 49 states which is two chambers, each with a one-man, one-vote setup, and each with separate powers. Is, is that pointless? Yes, in that it probably doesn't make a huge amount of difference to political outcomes in the long run if you have two chambers. Unlike the U.S. Senate, if that system disappeared in most states, it wouldn't matter enormously. No, if you think that extra checks are good within a legislative system, which I do. I can see two major benefits to having two chambers at the state level. The first is specialization. If the Senate does different things than the House, say oversight or judicial appointments or what you will, it develops its own character, which can be useful. The second is as a gut check. As a rule, running an idea past two different bodies, each containing different people with different roles, can be efficacious. But it's a good question. And in some sense, the fact that it was asked speaks to the enduring power of our Constitution. Why do most states have two chambers in their legislatures now that they aren't allowed to use one as a check on the straight majoritarian nature of the other? I think the answer is simple. I think the answer is because the federal constitution has two chambers. And because that constitution retains its remarkable influence over our other institutions, even when it doesn't make perfect sense. My sponsor today is ExpressVPN. Now, as many of you will know, I'm a big tech guy, and I'm pretty attuned to the various threats 
on the internet. And that's why I use this product, ExpressVPN, myself and, in fact, have for years. I have it on my iPhone and my iPad and my Mac and my MacBook Pro. And especially when I travel, I have it on all the time. You might say that going online without ExpressVPN is like leaving your kids with the nearest stranger while using the restroom. Most of the time, it's probably fine, but you never truly know who you're trusting. So why would you risk it? That's why you need to be using ExpressVPN. Every time you connect to an unencrypted network, cafes, hotels, airports, basically any network that's not your own at home, your online data is not secured, which means that any hacker on the same network can gain access to and steal your personal data. Passwords, financial details, you name it. But if you use ExpressVPN, which you can turn on with one button, you create a secure encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet so that hackers on the same network cannot steal your stuff and make cash selling your information on the dark web. The good news is that I have a code for ExpressVPN, which you can use at expressvpn.com. It's CCWC, so just go to expressvpn.com, E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com forward slash C-C-W-C. And if you do that, you will get three months extra free. My guest today is Elbridge Colby, a former Pentagon official and the author of The Strategy of Denial, American Defense in an Age of Great Power Conflict, which the Wall Street Journal named as one of the top 10 books of 2021. Bridge, welcome to the Charles C. W. Cook podcast. Great to be with you, Charlie. So I'd like to start by talking about Taiwan. As you know, I'm not a foreign policy guy in the way you are. I don't write about this topic much, partly because I'm not especially well-versed in it, and partly because even when I do the reading, I often don't know what I think, or at least I don't know what I think with enough confidence to advance forceful arguments. But I am aware, uh, just by osmosis, that a potential invasion of Taiwan by China is a big issue about which people are worried. I'm aware that there are disagreements as to whether China intends to invade Taiwan or even can invade Taiwan, as well as when it would do that if it could. I'm aware that there are disagreements as to what effect an invasion would have on the world economy and on the defense posture of the United States. And I'm aware, and this is where you come in, that there are disagreements as to why and how much we should care about Taiwan and what we should be doing to prepare for a potential invasion. So I wanted to talk to you about all of those things and to get your perspective. And I want to start, if I may, with a really basic question, which is why does Taiwan matter within the world system 
and to the United States and the West more generally to an extent that, say, the Falkland Islands don't. Well, thanks. That's great. And I really you know, appreciate your perspective, the kind of open-minded searching perspective, which is unusual to find in this day and age, especially in places like Twitter. So it's really, um, it's, a, it's a great chance to talk to, 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 to you. Um, look, Taiwan is important because Asia is important and it's, in, it's, it's of really, really critical importance to Americans' practical live, uh, sort of livelihood. This is not about vague abstractions. This is basically about China uh, very clearly, I think, increasingly clearly, appears to want to establish control. I use the term hegemony, a kind of soft control over Asia, which is the world's largest market area, right? Which is basically going to be well over 50% of global GDP. If China achieves that, which is, you know, what Germany sought to do, Japan sought to do in Asia, the Soviet Union in some sense sought to do, et cetera. If it could achieve that, it would basically, let's, I'm going to simplify a little bit, but to make the point, basically control the world economy and it would have very strong incentives and I think desire to suppress the American economy and make our lives practically a lot worse. Like to me, that's pretty much what American foreign policy is about. Of course, our physical security, but you know, we live behind two big oceans, but about enabling, you know, the prosperity, the growth, and thus the kind of freedom and economic confidence and security, or at least the potential for it that are central to the American life. How would China seek to do that? Well, long story short, the only the way we're going to stop China, it's classics, the old way, is a balance of power through a coalition of countries. We're not strong or resolute enough to take on a pure superpower by ourselves. I mean, we fought World War II against Germany, which was a much smaller economy with two huge allies, Soviet Union, British Empire. So that's pretty classic. Okay, balance of power, so far so good that a lot of that's actually happening. The problem is China also has agency here, and China's basically pretty clearly going to try to form its own coalition, but also break apart our coalition. And that's where Taiwan becomes really, really critical, because Taiwan is central, because everybody in Asia is saying, look, not everybody, but most of the people, Japan, India, Vietnam, Philippines, Australia, et cetera, Taiwan itself, South Korea, I don't want to live under Chinese domination. I want to work with the Americans to balance China, but I also don't want to be caught out here alone and get smashed by the Chinese to, made, to be made an example of. And so they're looking carefully at how much they can trust the United States. And Taiwan is central in that because it's China's best go at the problem. Uh, and if, if Taiwan could see, if China could seize Taiwan, it could basically demonstrate the hollowness of, of the United States and, and undermine confidence in the United States and essentially create a kind of bank run. And this is not a domino theory, like inexorable thing, like something that happens in the Falkland Islands affects what happens in Asia. It's very practical. Like if you're in Manila, you can actually, or if you're in the Northern Islands of the Philippines, you can see Taiwan. Ditto from some parts of the Japanese archipelago. So this is a very practical assessment. Moreover, if the Chinese seize Taiwan, they basically will have uninhibited access out into the cent Western and Central Pacific. So that's going to be a big problem. That's not going to be the end of it. And we know this is not going to be the end of it because the Chinese are building a military, both the forces, but also the basing architecture to support much larger gains. And so the stakes here are of enormous importance. And I think the, the point to stress here, Charlie, is it's more of a delicate balance than people appreciate. I think there's often a sense that, that major structural geopolitical challenges or changes can't happen without like World War III. And that's not actually true. And my, my, the example I, I like to use in this context is the wars of German unification, which most people don't know that much about but were hugely consequential. For centuries, it had been a fixed verity of British and French foreign policy to ensure that Germany did not unify because it would be too powerful. It could become such a hegemon. Under Bismarck, you know, that Berlin was able to achieve this with wars that in the context of European history were actually pretty small and short. And that's what we need to worry about because things could fall apart after Taiwan in a pretty bad way. 
So what is it about Taiwan? Is it that Taiwan is the major manufacturer of microchips? Is it that Taiwan is in a position that would allow China to project military strength? Is it that Taiwan is the key to keeping American shipping lanes open? Why is it Taiwan and not, say, Vladivostok? Well, it's a combination. It's less the semiconductors, although they're certainly salient. Um, it's more a combination of our credit is on the line, right? Which is we don't have a pledge to Vladivostok. We don't have a pledge to Mongolia. We don't have a pledge to Uzbekistan or Tajikistan. If the Chinese want to go attack them, nobody's going to say, "Well, the Americans are untrustworthy; they're not to be believed." We've had basically since the since the end of the Chinese Civil War in various forms. We've basically been effectively committed to Taiwan's defense. Obviously, not its independence, but its defense. So, so it's, it's, a, it's a long stand. Of course, the President of the United States has now said four times he's going to defend Taiwan. And the other thing is, it's a neighbor, right? It's the geography. Geography is critical. There's a tendency to think, oh, you know, war and peace are now about zeros and ones and cyber. And I think we've seen in Ukraine, that's not the case. Old-fashioned stuff like geography, how much fuel do you have? How many shells do you have? How many missiles do you have? What kind of reconnaissance do you have? Those are the things that matter. If the Chinese sees Taiwan, everybody's going to say, well, wait, the, the, the Americans are full of it on something that is central to me about China, right? And they're going to say, well, before the Chinese were stuck on the mainland, now they can actually get out there and, and, and hold an island. They've got their Navy and their Navy has uninhibited access. You know, you can see elements of Japanese and Philippine territory. And this is why, you know, the other thing about, to remember, from a military perspective, there's a reason why we picked this, what's called the first island chain after the end of the Second World War as our defense perimeter in the Pacific. There's nothing in the main, most of the Pacific. It's all over on the Western side, basically, except the US and uh, Canada. But, you know, we are ultimately best off as a democracy and so forth in a kind of an island in the geopolitical sense as a maritime and aerospace power. So we were like, that's logic. Don't get in a ground war in Asia. We haven't made a security commitment to Vietnam or we have sort of a soft one with Thailand. The one exception is South Korea, which is a peninsula. But, you know, Taiwan is Japan, Philippines, Australia. That's our strong suit, right? Because that's aerial and maritime warfare more. I mean, there is certainly a land component. If we lose there, then that's a big hit to our, you know, we're going to be talking about the Philippine Sea, battles in the Philippine Sea potentially for the first time since 1944. I think the bottom line, the really important thing to stress is, you know, the stakes are economic, but it's very, very clear that we need to plan that the Chinese would not stop with Taiwan. If the Chinese could have built a military, specifically just to deal with Taiwan, or even better, just to have territorial defense. They could be a world economic superpower, have a very advanced military that was, you know, air defense systems, short-range aircraft, et cetera, et cetera. That's not what they have. They have, they have those things, but they also have long-range aviation. They have overseas bases. They have nuclear-powered submarines. They have a huge space architecture. They're building aircraft carriers. That's, an, that's a military like the American military, and that's very scary if you're thinking about how often the American military gets used. So if you were president... You would be focused on this area. You would have an Asia-centric foreign policy. Ron DeSantis, governor of Florida, probably gearing up to run for president, said recently that the biggest threat to the United States geopolitically was China and that it wasn't even close. I assume you think that's correct. How does this administration and the foreign policy establishment in general see this? How far away are there from your view? And what do they need to do in your estimation to adapt? 
Well, I think Governor DeSantis is 100% right. It's also very important that political leaders do what he did, which is to express clarity on that point in a sharp way, Because, and that's because of the problem with the current administration. I would say the foreign policy establishment writ large, including a lot of what Governor DeSantis calls the old guard Republicans. It's a slightly different view. I would say the administration is more of the view that what matters is you know friendships and the rules-based international order and soft power. And so they're worried about the military threat to Taiwan. But I think in the back of their mind, they're thinking, well, if we've got Europe on side and Japan and South Korea and Australia, we'll be good. We could, we could, we could cover down. They, they won't say that explicitly, but I think that's the kind of their, their, their plan and that you know, you, Chinese are going to have difficulty projecting power beyond that. I think that's overly sanguine. But let me, let me focus a little bit more on, on the divides within the Republican side, which I think are more material in a sense. Um, I've been very disappointed with what I think of as like the kind of hawk Republicans. I mean, I, I'm a realist, so sometimes I'm a hawk, sometimes I'm a dove. But look, what defines, I think, both realists and hawks is, is taking hard power very seriously, right? Which is to say military power at the end of the day is what's most determinative. And I think we've seen that even today, right? The, the Russians failed to take over Ukraine by any other means than the attempt to use military force. And when they failed at that, the Ukrainians resisted. But by the same token, our unprecedented economic sanctions campaign is having almost no effect on Russia's political decision-making. It's having some effect on degrading their military industry and so forth. But Putin seems as resolute as ever, sadly. So, you know, realists and hawks would say, yeah, you know, what matters is the military balance. Now, we all know that the military balance in the Pacific has eroded dramatically over the last 10 or 15 years. And this is one of the, this is the cardinal thing, you know, me, uh, my colleagues and I were trying to, to turn around in, tw- in the 2018 national defense threat and the others like Bob work under the Obama administration. And in fact, in a lot of ways, the, the Pentagon strategy, the Biden administration released at least ostensibly continued that point, at least formally, but we have not, we've not succeeded. <laughs> so I, I think the strategy was good, but the, the implementation has been a failure. And so in that context, people who take hard power seriously should be saying, hey, man, you're on the verge of having a heart attack. You know, like you better you better change your diet. You better get a, you know, a stent put in there. You better take emergency action. And what I've been real, really disappointed about in the, in the old guard establishment on the Republican side is just kind of like a blah, like, hey, we can do it. You know, we can do it. And these are the same people who for 10 or 15 years have been saying that we've been spending too little on defense. And it's like, well, how's that possible? We know we don't have a military. I mean, people have been saying for years, we should have a two-war military. We don't have a two-war military. Okay, well, should we act like it or not? And I'm, I'm not saying that we should cut off Ukraine or other things, but I'm saying that um, we should take the problem really seriously. And I think whoever is president next, next presidential term, I hope it's a Republican, is going to face in the most visceral, immediate way the possibility of a conflict in or around 2027. And you had better be ready. And you're not going to, I mean, the way I think about it, you're not going <laughs> to, no serious, I think, person ultimately is going to say, you're going to stop the, a determined PLA assault through talking about the rules-based international order or hashtags on Twitter. You know, that's not going to stop it. You know, what's going to stop it is cold, hard steel and the possession thereof. And we're way behind where we need to be. And this is a critical point. We need to live in reality. And I thought that's what Governor DeSantis' comments have been indicating is like, look, we don't have the defense industrial base that we need to. Yes, we're recognizing we have a problem, but we're still kicking back a bottle of whiskey every night at this point, right? Like we can't say that we've, we're on step one of the Alcoholics Anonymous program. We got to get to step 12 before we s- s- spike the football. You're making it sound a little bit like our entitlements issue where people will say, yes, of course, yeah. we have this problem. 
Let me ask you about the American public. We've talked about Governor DeSantis, we've talked about Joe Biden, we've talked about the foreign policy establishment. What about American voters? Everyone knows, to extend my analogy, that we have an issue with our deficits, we have an issue with our debt. No one actually wants to do anything about it because it's political suicide. One aspect, presumably, of preparing, of acting on these fears is to start telling Americans who do not right. seem to be prepared for this and mm -hmm. probably would be somewhat alarmed by what you're saying that this conflict or at least the attempt to prevent it may well be a defining feature of our politics over the next few years. Where do you think Americans are on this? I don't think they're there, which is worries me a lot because, and I get it. I mean, first of all, I think they're rightly sick and tired and, and suspicious after 20 years of these futile wars, peripheral voluntary interventions, essentially. So I get that. But on the other hand, it's just like, just because the boy cried wolf five times, the wolf may actually come after the flock. And that's where we're, we're in the situation. And the other thing is, and I just gave you my answer. I don't think my answer on Taiwan is very convincing, unfortunately. I don't think I've, I, I've been trying to get it, hone it as much as possible, but it's, it remains, I don't want to say theoretical, but a little bit abstract or kind of um, attenuated maybe would be the word. I don't know. Like it, it, it's not visceral. But the problem is you can ha end up having huge immediate consequences happen because of something that seemed at the time Abstract. I mean, you know, you know, Hitler analogies are always dangerous because they're overused and everything. But like the remilitarization of the Rhineland or the Anschluss, like to Americans, didn't seem that big of a deal. Whatever. It's some, but it eventually did have like very direct implications on on Americans, right? Through several stages, but things that kind of were moved in in, in train, and that's I think where a lot of people are. I think a lot of people, including on the right, frankly, get that China is a major threat, but they say. Yeah, but like Taiwan, I mean, whatever, isn't that part of China? Well, no, not necessarily, but like, it's kind of complicated. And the Taiwanese, by the way, don't seem very serious. Correct, they're not very serious, big problem. So it's a like, it's like, eh, you know, and, and it's just sort of like, and then, man, are you kind of, uh, is this another one of these, you know, it's all, you know, 1938 again and again and again. And that's, you know, one of the things that angers me about the neoconservative wing is they've really undermined the ability to use these historical analogies when they actually resonate and might matter or might matter in their, or matter and they might resonate. So I think that's, that's, and that's what a lot of what I'm trying to do is trying to make it clear to the Americans the stakes. I mean, I'm trying to do several things. I'm trying to do that, but I'm also trying to, so that we don't overdo it because we like, we should take China really, really seriously. It's a peer economy, right? I mean, these they're building a massive nuclear force. They're incredibly high tech in a lot of areas. Like these people are not a joke. And I feel like a lot of Republican politicians peacock at them, you know, go and meet with Ty John Bolton was meeting with Taiwanese pro-independence groups. I mean, you know, like calling, you know, Xi Jinping Hitler or something like that. I mean, crazy stuff, like really provocative, right? May or may not be true or fair, but like really dangerous, you know, we, we need to get back in a sense to where we were in the Cold War, which is like, yeah, these guys are really evil and, and well, evil, whatever. They're really bad and they're, they have evil intent potentially or, or, or they can do a lot of damage, et cetera. But we, you know, like you don't, you don't talk about the massive, you know, seven foot tall bully uh, lightly. You, you, you only provoke him when you're ready. The only thing I would say, Charlie, on just on the evil thing, I would just say, you know, I, what I mean is like there are elements of evil, but I don't think we should like, heavily, I think we should avoid trying to existentialize the conflict with it. So like, I think communism is evil. I hate it. But at the same time, we should 
make clear what the, what our stakes are. And I think that's a that's a that's a kind of another thing I'm trying to do. But I think the difference on the debt limit or the um, entitlements issue, and I'm sympathetic to what you're saying, is there's not. I don't think there's not a, ho- a hostile, adversarial, adaptive rival in the context of the entitlement issue. I mean, there's obviously negotiating dynamics between the parties and different vested interests, but in the context of, of a great power rivalry, you have a basically hostile adversary <laughs> operating that is going to seek to take advantage of you. I assume on the entitlements issue, what you're saying, what you're saying is, is right, but there's a, in the back of the mind, people are saying, ah, we can do what we did in the eighties. We'll figure it out. There might be some crisis, but we'll get through it. Right. But that sort of assumes that there's not somebody out there, like there's not a bear or a dragon out there that's going to like come in and take advantage of the situation. Why are the Taiwanese not taking this seriously? Surely they have the most question. to lose. That is a great question on which I spend a lot of time thinking. In fact, I kind of, I've been in a bit of like a Twitter fight with a lot of them uh, over the last few days because um, they, my, they appear to have their heads in the sand. I think there's an element of human nature that um, the analogy I use is um, maybe it's trite, but I think it's I think it kind of works. Is uh, Taiwan is like a man with a cut in in the ocean, and China's like a great white shark, and America is a man in the boat. America actually has a better vantage on seeing that shark, so we actually know what's going on in China, our government, better than Taiwan because we have all these satellites. Blah, blah, blah. Taiwanese have like finger feel better sense of the, which is why they shut down on COVID, by the way, much more quickly than we did. But, you know, I, I think a lot, it actually works because if you're, if you're like a man in that situation in the water, you can't really see the shark. And, and if you can kind of make it out, you kind of think to yourself, well, if I start flapping around, do I provoke the shark? Right. So Taiwan's kind of thinking like, man, if I start doing the Israel thing, will I, will I then provoke the invasion that I wanted to avoid? And you kind of hope that it goes away. And that maybe if you just sit there, you know, in the water quietly, maybe the shark will go after something else, you know, but meanwhile, the Americans are saying, hey, there's a great white shark, and I'm not going to dive into the water to get you, I'll put my arm in the water, but you got to swim over here. And the problem is, once that great white shark starts, go, starts moving, you got no time, you're done, you know, if you're not already on the side of the boat, right, because it's a great white shark. And so that's, I think, that's kind of like the metaphor that I, based on my experience, where a lot of Taiwanese, and I understand, I mean, it's a human level, they're like, geez, I don't want to be, <laughs> I don't want to be like the arena of a conflict, you know, between, you know, that involves the United States and China. But the problem is that, I'm sorry, we didn't make it that way. China lusts after Taiwan, not only for irredentist reasons, but for geopolitical ones. And they're building a military to do it. And they openly confess to reserving the right to use military force. So, I mean, in that kind of context, I think you have to, I mean, and and, and the Chinese are openly talking about re-education. There's no way they can let these green, you know, pro-independence people run around the PRC if Taiwan is uh, is brought in. So I, I actually don't know what they're thinking, and I tell them very directly that they're putting their survival at at, at real risk. Um, and I think the problem is Taiwan is very important to the United States, but it's not existential. If we get to a point where the defense of Taiwan becomes too costly, it, we it, we will be compelled to let it go. Now that would be a disastrous situation. But that's kind of where, where they're heading with their current attitude. How does Ukraine play into all of this? I had my colleague Noah Rothman on this podcast a few weeks ago, and he argued that it was imperative that we do all we can for Ukraine and that there were really almost no trade-offs in our doing so. Is there a meaningful opportunity cost to our focusing 
on Ukraine to the extent that we are instead of on Asia and Taiwan in particular? Yeah, I mean, that's just not a serious argument. That there aren't trade-offs. I mean, if people want to see the best argument from the other side, I'd, I'd uh, recommend my uh, former colleague Jim Mitri, M-I-T-R-E, had a piece in War on the Rocks where he acknowledged the trade-offs, but he said the, the, the gains, including in kind of organizational learning of the Department of Defense, outweighed the trade-offs. I, I disagree with Jim. What are those trade-offs? Um, you know, one is that the munitions themselves, a lot of them do trade off. The notion that Taiwan is not a ground war is wrong. In fact, the number one finding of the CSIS big study on Taiwan is the importance of the Taiwanese ground forces. They need to be well equipped because the Chinese are likely to land in force on the island by sea or air in a determined invasion. Secondly, there's the capacity of the defense industrial base. There's scarcity all throughout the system through subcomponents. I mean, these are incredibly complex munitions, obviously. So they have lots of components and there's a lot of scarcity throughout. And so that needs to be allocated towards uh, 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 Taiwan first. Secondly, there's money. <laughs> money matters, right? And we spend a lot of money that could have, I mean, Indopaycom uh, saying they have about 3.5 billion underfunded what they asked for, which was probably already a low bar, uh, given the political and bureaucratic incentives in the systems right now. So that tells you something. Another is intelligence capabilities. Admiral Aquilino, the Indopaycom commander said that you need in persistent intelligence capability to know what's going on. A lot of that's going to Ukraine. Now there's political capital attention. You know, the administration's going in asking the Japanese and the South Koreans to help the Ukrainians, not asking them to, to focus on a Taiwan fight as much, not Japan a little bit less. But, you know, I mean, that's where the administration's political capital and orientation. Now, I think there was a uh, plausible argument if you'd said like three or four months into the war, okay, we've done the damage that we, uh, we've done like a lot of damage to the Russians. Now we're going to pivot. You know, so th th that's a tenable argument in my, uh, you know, th that I think people could have made, but that's not what we're doing. Now we've taken like the leading role in supporting the Ukrainians and the war is very unlikely to end soon. I, there's a piece by my friend, Mike Kaufman in foreign affairs that I'd commend the co-authored with Rob Lee and Mike and the, Rob Lee are kind of the leading authorities on the, on the war there militarily. And they're saying this war is not going to end anytime soon. So there's, this is another area where the Hawks have been disappointing me because there's this conceit that like the Ukrainians can sort of like just come to victory at some point. And, you know, it's never clear, like, what is Ukrainian victory? What's the theory of victory, which involves persuading the Russians to give up, right, in some sustainable way. And like militarily, by the way, I mean, I hope the Ukrainians are successful, but the Ukrainians themselves are signaling, there was a Washington Post article earlier this week, with the Ukrainians themselves lowering expectations on the, on the, how far the, 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 their, their offensive is going to go. I, I hope they're wrong, but we should be, you know, we should take it seriously. I mean, the reality is if you're looking at this for like, uh, like in a serious way, is this war is likely to go on. Even if the Ukrainians are successful, it could continue as a cross-border war, or it might turn into an on and off conflict. My view is the Russians are going to continue to be a threat and we have to plan accordingly. The trade-offs are actually becoming more acute because we've actually really gone through a lot of our stocks. So now we're more and more digging into bone, which is I think one of the reasons the administration is trying to push negotiations, but I don't know what their theory of the case is because Putin doesn't seem to want to negotiate. And I doubt the Chinese will push him to negotiate because they benefit from a war that ties us down and depletes us in Europe. So I think that's, you know, and then just to be clear, my view is, has, is and has never been that we should abandon the Ukrainians. I'm sometimes sort of falsely accused of that. My view is we should genuinely prioritize the situation that is most important to us, which is Asia, Taiwan, where we are behind the curve. If there are things, I mean, I don't have a strong view. I mean, there are other issues with the F-16s, but for instance, I don't see F-16s having a real role or Abrams tanks having a real role 
in the Pacific. So those could be on the table. You know, there may be other reasons not to do it. Like the Abrams is a very complicated operator or whatever. But like, I'm not saying, oh, don't give any of the Ukrainians. I'm saying prioritize, you know, and then, then, then people say, well, what do you mean? And it's like, well, look, I'm not the secretary of defense. I don't know exactly offhand. I don't have like armies of analysts working for me. But you know what a priority is, right? And clearly the priority right now for both the president and a lot of senior Republicans is Ukraine, effectively. And I think that's incredibly dangerous and irresponsible. Let's finish by defining some terms. You called yourself a realist. You just referred to hawks. Sometimes people, and I think unfairly, sometimes people who are skeptical for whatever reason of escalating our involvement in Ukraine are called isolationist. What is a realist and what would be different about an American foreign policy that operated along realist lines compared to, say, hawkish lines or what we have today? That's a great question. I'll try, I'll try to do my best. Um, let, let's start out with realism. I mean, realism, I, when I use it, I mean it more in the colloquial term um, rather than a kind of sort of very particular academic definition. Some of the academics have kind of lost the thread to me on, on that issue. But like, realism in a way, it's actually, I would say it's a cognate of kind of maybe like Burkean conservatism in a way that's like, look, the world is a tough and uncertain place. You know, we're in a situation where you can't control our things. So you should really take care of your own things first. Don't take them for granted. At the end of the day, you do, if you don't want force to be relevant, you prepare for force, you take account of it. There are trade-offs in the world. I mean, that, that's sort of like, to me, that's almost like the central thing in conservative thinking is like, there's no free lunch in the world. You know, those are the things. And kind of looked at geopolitically, it means, well, okay, you know, uh, the world's an uncertain and, and in some ways anarchic place. So you have to have a strategy. You have to take that realistically and plan accordingly. What really matters is power. If you want to make, if you want right to triumph over might, you have to be mighty too, right? And I mean, if anybody's interested, I wrote about the moral case for this in First Things last year. It's called The Morality of a Strategy of Denial, because I think actually realism is more moral than the alternatives. So uh, uh, let me just define it from uh, the others, and then I'll return to what the implications would be. I think, you know, the, uh, the obvious kind of other pole would be what you could call liberal internationalism, uh, which would be that what matters is like the ideology of the um, of the government in question and geography and hard power are less important in the balance than norms. And so the rules-based international order and, and the way, think the way like Tony Blinken at least talks, right? I would say American foreign policy over time has tended to be a blend of realism and liberal internationalism. Often the rhetoric is more, as, and, and I would say the policy has been more liberal internationalist, especially since the collapse of the Soviet Union. During the Cold War, my sense is actually the policy was usually, you know, except maybe Carter and to some extent JFK, the, the policy was sort of was quite realist. So you think Eisenhower, Nixon, and I think in a lot of ways, Reagan, the rhetoric tended to be more, you know, but I mean, it was kind of like, you know, pretty, pretty hard nosed working with who was on our side, even if we didn't agree with him on domestic stuff, et cetera, et cetera. Hawks are a little bit different. Hawk is not really, it's not a a theory in the same way. It's more of like a disposition. It's basically the idea that the assertion of strength, it's a little bit of a different axis. The assertion of strength is the best way to get things done, whether that be persuading somebody to do something they don't want to do or, you know, currying favor or solving a problem. So think John Bolton, right? Which is contrasted with Dove, which is to say like, 
you know, the best way is talking and conciliation. My view is I'm a realist. I'm a, sometimes I'm a hawk, sometimes I'm a dove, even on the same problem, because it depends on the context. So to me, one of the problems with our de debate over the last generation is most people, you know, the neoconservatives and the liberals have mostly been agreed about liberalism, liberal internationalism as the, you know, frame. They've just disagreed about the means, you know, how belligerent to be, you know, so like the George W. Bush administration was very liberal, but they believed in the use of force to solve problems, whereas Clinton was liberal, but believed more in multilateralism, yada, yada, yada. The last one would be isolationism. I don't like to use the term isolationism because I think it's, I think it's, a, it's kind of a canard and it's used to, in an often defamatory way to sort of marginalize people. I think if you want to take their position at face value, it's often called restraint. The way I think about restraint is it sometimes overlaps with realism, but it's fundamentally different. It's basically akin to libertarianism which is to say the problem is usually the state and the military industrial complex. If we leave things alone, naturally occurring good order will, will, will emerge. And I just think that's not how life or systems work. And I don't think it's ever how we behave. How would a realist foreign policy look differently? It would say, well, like what's, what's fundamentally an American's interest enlightened self-interest. We should look uh, to, to co cooperate wherever possible and help others where, where possible and feasible. And looking at that, you say China is by far the most significant challenge to our interests, and we're going to prioritize it accordingly. And we're not going to say things, I mean, an absurd, you know, view on the other extreme, or not, I don't think my position is extreme, I think it's kind of moderate in a way, but like, you know, David um, Gold, uh, Goldberg, I think, and um, Ann Applebaum's piece in The Atlantic saying that, you know, the future of democracy is at stake in the Donbass and Crimea, that's like super liberal internationalist to the max, where it's like everything is normative and it's an example. And if, 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 you know, if, if they don't recover all their territory, then, you know, democracy is going to fall in the Philippines and, you know, wherever uh, I, that's, I just don't think how things work. And I don't think that's the right way to do it. I think you would say, well, look, and also you'd look, I think fundamentally a very important thing that'd be very different from this administration would be how we would deal with allies, which is like not beating them up and, uh, for, for fun or out of spite, but rather saying, look, this is more like a business partnership in a way, you know? which is kind of like a realist thing, like, hey, you know, it's supposed to be mutually beneficial because, you know, this is, a, this is not like a, a charity operation, right? The American foreign policy is supposed to serve Americans' interests. It also, we're looking for win-win benefit. You know, you, we in Poland, we in Taiwan, we in South Korea, we have mutual benefit. Okay, but like, if you're not pulling your weight, there's going to be problems. Newsflash, Germany, Taiwan, uh, uh, Japan, uh, et cetera. That, I think, would be the approach. But I think, the, you know, to me, if you actually... the, the in a way, I don't like if you want democracy and freedom and American ideals to be <laughs> successful in the world, realism will tell you that the most important way to do that is for the United States to be secure and powerful. The reason so many countries became democracies after the collapse of the Soviet Union is that there wasn't the USSR spreading communism, and undermining democracy all over the world. So I actually don't even think that the, 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 the liberal objectives that David Goldberg and, and, um, and Ann Applebaum are... Um, are advocating for will be served by their policy. I think if you actually want those ends, you should actually support a realist foreign policy. I might have different views about like the domestic context or whatever, but like, you know, Americans are going to have more leverage if we pursue a, a Republican foreign policy or, or a realist foreign policy. And by the way, be more secure and prosperous and economically secure. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Pleasure. And that's all we've got time for this week. Thank you to my guest, Elbridge Colby, for talking to me about Taiwan. Thank you to Luther Abel for 
spending his final hours down in the control room. Actually, I'm right here. No, you're not. Thank you to you for listening, and we'll see you next week. Charlie, it's the Ventriloquation system. I'm going to need three beers and a pipe wrench.